1212. Is there anybody out there? Sounds good. Sounds good. So let's get it going. Mitsuyu Maeda, the famous Konjikoma, the man is said to be the founding father of Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, but that's not even his real name. I'll hold that for a second. The plot twists are already coming in. Alright, before I continue, let me remind you that I have sponsors and they are incredible. I mean, one of the sponsors is Browse. Browse creating amazing stuff for jujitsu, rash guards, geese, shorts, streetwear, the whole mishmash. And um, not only that, but they also have the Browse Foundation, which is supplying people in need with water. So I'm going to link that below and you can check it out. Amazing company, amazing people. Just love it. And the other one I want to thank is and do a shout out to this Kaizen. Kaizen League, we had our competition that we prepared for and that we created. And it was uh, this weekend or last weekend. No, wait a minute. We're already a weekend past. Uh, it was the 7th of October. And oh God, did we put down something amazing and legendary. And the people from Kaizen have been so gracious and graceful as to also provide us with... Um, some sponsoring to make this video and future videos and future audio and future podcasts all about jujitsu. So hey guys, here we go. Yeah, Mitsuyo Maeda wasn't even his real name. He was born Hideo Maeda. Get that? Um, he was born to a farmer's family. So if you remember that at this time, and this is 1880 something, 86 if I'm not mistaken, that he was born. And at this time, like the idea of social, of being able to move social classes was not a real thing or was still very something very new to, to the Japanese culture because you were born a farmer, you're going to die one. And if you were born a samurai, guess what? You, you better die one. It wasn't something that changed a lot during this whole period of time. So you were what you were born into. And um, Hideo Maeda, born a farmer, was uh, is an important little piece of information that you'll take on along with you a little bit further on uh, the story time. But yeah, uh, born uh, to uh, a family of farmers, he was. I'm not going to go into the district, but one interesting little thing in this time was that he, at a very young age, already started to learn sumo. Now you might be thinking. Sumo, what the fuck? Uh, isn't that for the big guys? And yes, in a sense, but do not put down sumo in any kind of way. It has a complex form of grappling embedded in it with a complex form of techniques and it was very advanced. And yes, of course, the sumo we know nowadays probably doesn't look very much as a sumo at that time or ancient times uh, where... Now the heavyweights have taken over and the absolute class is the main one. And it all has to do also with how much you weigh and stuff like that. But at that time, uh, it, it is a complex grappling system with complex technical throws and stuff like that that were all incorporated into this. So that's how he started off. And the idea of what sumo is and how it turned out to be what it is today i mean i don't know maybe with with 
with the evolution of jujitsu and steroids and this whole thing, we might in the future only see that kind of a change for in that direction that grappling only becomes for those that have the correct physical properties to do it. And yeah, jumping, but I'll, I'll let you guys break your heads on this one. I'm not going to go into that, but it's worth thinking about that. Like, where's the future of this sport going to? Or any sport at that least, like depending on it, if the most physically adept person in a certain circumstance continuously keeps on beating and winning the sport, then eventually every single other person will try to mimic or have that same physical type or or to, to, to be ahead in the sport. It is what it is. Um, so yeah, he was doing sumo, he was uh, winning a couple of tournaments in that little village where he was from, and it's important to keep in mind. Now, um, later on, uh, Maeda then moves, at the later age, of course, he moves into a preparatory school, preparatory school in uh, Tokyo, and this was like a prep school to go into higher education school and the higher education school he went to was a technical higher education school so it's not the university of tokyo but it's something very 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 specific or very very similar to it now as he was growing up in this he um, he made his first contact with some people that were already doing judo and specifically again I will not go necessarily into the names of every single person, but people that were already in Kodokan and were already respected, already contacted him, and he started training with them, but not in any official way, because the school he went to didn't have an official club of judo. They did form a club of jiu-jitsu that they had at that time, and he did join that club, but not officially judo, so he was training in between, right? And he also had this kind of background in in sumo, so that's important to remember. Now, later on in in this time, he got an invite, and the invite was to join the Kodokan, the actual Kodokan, and um, he already was given permission to go, so he signed as uh, Hideo Maeda, and he enrolled and registered into the Kodokan, the actual famous judo birthplace with Kano and the four horsemen were there, already very established. And yeah, he signed up. And he was given, once he signed up, he his tutelage fell under Tomita. <clears throat> now it's important to um, remember Tomita. Because he'll come back a lot in this story. And he was his main coach. And Tomita was also one of the four horsemen. Or one of the four main students that were directly taught by Kano. Now a little interesting thing. The the papers that says Mitsuo Maeda joined the Kodokan. You, you can find them online and they're still active. And it's so interesting to see that for you to have an idea how serious Maeda took this. In Japan, they used to sign everything with a seal. And because he came from a farmer's family, they didn't have an official seal or stamp. So he signed with his blood. That's how serious he took it. 
And that's a very interesting little thing. Like they, that they used to be normal that you would sign with your blood joining into a gym or people. So they took that extremely seriously because you were blood tied to that which you signed your name to is the easiest way to, to, to understand this. So Tomita was one of his main student or main teachers that got there. He already, of course, would receive uh, tutelage from other teachers, but his main teacher was Tomita. And that's the only other name I really would go into right now because it's the main name that will most appear or in his uh, future. Now, after training for a little while, and we're not, not talking a really long time, I think it's within a year from what I understood, um, the Kodokan actually made a competition, they prepared one, and this competition they prepared was like a internal competition open to everybody, and uh, he fought there, and he actually won 14 times in a row, which isn't against, like he didn't fight against the top top there, because he wasn't allowed to, because he was still a beginner or a white belt in a sense, but he did so extremely well, and he did fight among also people that were graduated or uh, shodan, which is first first degree black belts, you would say, or black belts and all. And he fought so well that soon after that, um, the other black belts decided, let's make him a black belt too. And remember, there's not so many belts out there, so they didn't go through blue, purple, and all this thing. It was basically, it was white belt, black belt. And then within the black belts, there were degrees. All right, so that's how you should see it. Now, he fought 14 times in a row, won 14 times in a row. So people were like, uh, you know what, let's 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 make him into a black belt. <laughs> Which is, of course, this is also an inspiration to, to all the other coaches out there. If you're cooking your students too long in the same belt, come on. Like, how done can the student be? Like, let them go to the next belt, let them... Let him figure it out. I mean, the main thing that will... You can get experience in lower belts and stuff like that. I'm perfectly aware of that. And I perfectly support that. But there's a time when they're done. Just push them up to the next one. Come on. Um, For the four horsemen. So where I can place Maeda in the best way. So you can have a more of a better mental picture in a hierarchy system of him. There were the four horsemen. And these were the four main guys of the Kodokan under Kano. That's how you should see it. And under that generation, you would get something they would call the three pillars. And the three pillars, one of them was Maeda. So that you have an idea how good this guy was, he was the generation after the horseman. He was kind of the strongest dude to come out. One of the three strongest dudes to come out and having gotten that title and having gotten to that level and to that black belt he would become a co-head coach or assistant head coach to the main coach which was Tomita and he would also go to other gyms and be an assistant head coach and he was teaching for a certain amount of time in Japan um, as an assistant head coach, so that is a pretty high level at that time, right? And remember, in the in the last um, episode where I was talking a lot that Kano used to travel a lot and trying to bring 
um, judo to the world, and that is something that he actually did successfully and uh, did also give us a path to follow, like try to bring this out to as many people as you can. Uh, because it betters lives. They, he truly believed that. And in, with that in mind, the Kodokan had um, the availability for you to go out into the Western world, as it were, and teach over there and, and live over there and bring Judo to these places. Now, that was amazing, of course, because every they, you, they, they suddenly proliferized um, they suddenly showed judo to a lot of people all over the world, you know. Um, that is really, really important. Now, Tomita, in 1904, went to the USA and took with him Maeda, which is super interesting because they came over there and they're, of course, going to already show to some people what judo is and give seminars. And there is actually a poster. Um, I can post it later on if you remind me of uh, 1905 of the University of Columbia in New York where there is this poster where it shows Tomita and Maeda going to the university actually going and teaching people about uh, judo that is super interesting and the system of how the seminar worked was like what is judo? Uh, why is it important to learn it? Um, how well does it work for women and children? How do you fall? What is the self-defense aspect? Uh, why is it important to know the self-defense aspect? Why is it, They also would teach how you should practice judo or how you should do judo, judo and why it is better for the mind to train and practice judo to become a better person so they used to do these showcases and that was actually the seminar system that they would do and you can read that back and at the end they would do challenges like uh, is there anybody out there that wants to try it and one of the main things that came out of that was that Maeda was the main guy they would fight you know because he was the assistant coach but that's not because Tomita wouldn't fight Tomita was a lot older too and was a couple of duns above um, Maeda, but it's just that Maeda would be the guy that usually like goes first, right? And in, and that usually he would always win. He would always throw people. He would always get them on the floor. He would always just obliterate whoever showed up, and that was a very important thing. Um, and of course, during this time, in one of these presentations, in one of these universities, somebody eventually said, well, look, Tomita, Tomita is also there teaching, but he never participates in the challenges. Can we challenge him? And it's not like Tomita then bravely took the front and everything like that. It was very simple. He got challenged. He came out and fought. And if I'm not mistaken, there's, there's a lot of myth and a lot of legends going through this. And this is a very important little piece of information because this also ties in with the history of wrestling and grappling and catch as catch can in the United States. Because while Maeda was beating everybody, uh, Tomita fought once, twice, maybe even three times, and then he eventually, in the fourth round, got beaten. He got thrown, actually, and lost. And people hang a lot of value on that one time, because that was also why 
one of the reasons why wrestling and catch-as-catch-can at that time was more preferred than judo. Judo got, got its place in the, in the United States, but the United States still hailed catch-as-catch-can and wrestling as something more than that, I would say. Um, I want to go into the history of that because it's amazing, fun history to go into, but I first have to go to the direction of finishing jiu-jitsu. But that's also a little... A little interesting stuff and it has to do with the circus and stuff like that and uh, prize fighting and we will go into that later now anyway all the fighting that was done at that time was purely presentational and for the kodokan that was perfectly fine that tomita lost is okay he was a little bit devastated but not overly um and after that tomita did move um they arrived at the west coast and they stayed there teaching everybody there and then eventually he moved to the east coast in the meantime while he moved to the east coast maeda was fighting still around and was being the main guy to fight maeda then decided to know i'm gonna travel and at this time maeda flew to england and over there he met all with more japanese expats i would say the uh, judo expats that came out towards uh uh japan and fought over there and challenged people over there and would um uh, do prize fights but not official prize fights but normal fights now the reason these guys were specifically in england was because there was an englishman that actually went over to japan saw them fighting was so interested he brought them over to england and together they started one of the oldest schools in judo, which is the Budokwai in England. It's still there. It's still amazing. It's still growing. And it's one of the biggest, oldest judo schools outside of Japan. Um, or systems, let's say, like that. Or, or, or federations. And Maeda went over there and met up with them and started training with them as well. And then he found out about catch as catch can. And one of the things that Englishman said at that time when he brought over the Japanese was like, you guys have to do prize fights. Why? People are much more willing to listen to you and to look at you and to, to give you their attention if it is within the prize fight. Outside of a prize fight, they're not so likely to give you that attention. So, consider it. Now, prize fighting was very non-non, okay, for the Kodokan. It was purely for seminars and teaching reasons, so receiving money for that was not okay. But in a way, they kind of still went and they decided not to take the prize money. And that was okay for a while. But then they realized in England, they have this system of, of catch-as-catch-can in wrestling where if you pin somebody to the ground, you have to keep them there for a certain while. And in one of the books that Maeda, in letters that Maeda wrote, he actually says, uh, these, these foreigners, they give a lot of attention to Kozen Judo. So it is a form of Judo that Maeda already knew how to do, but he didn't give any interest or attention to it because in, in normal judo in, and, and in Japan, the most important thing was to throw somebody, to land them on their heads or on their backs. That was the idea. And the Kozen judo part, which was the nevaza part, he knew how to do it. He actually showed katas in it, but he didn't give much attention to it. But once he arrived in England, he saw how important it was to have this pinning and submission and fighting from your back techniques because the prize fights would say 
things like if somebody touches, if both somebody's shoulders touch the floor, that doesn't mean the fight is over. The fight is over if somebody taps. Remember that. The fight is over when somebody taps. And these were how the fight systems were there. So once he was there, he was training in catch as catch can, in wrestling and all these things. And in judo at the same time, implementing these things and implementing the stuff he learned in sumo. And was starting to make this little mix of something. After a while, he then decided to go to, he was invited to go to Spain. And in Spain, that's actually when he changed his name. And the reason he changed his name, because there was another Japanese man there telling people he was the best fighter there was. In Japan, he got beaten up by Maeda, but in Spain, he was the greatest fighter there was. So Maeda started teaching in a couple of military places, and he started teaching in other places. And this was interesting because this was the moment that he changed his name from Hideo Maeda to Mitsuyo Maeda. Now, he didn't like the sound of it because it sounded weird in Japanese. Mitsuyo Maeda doesn't really give that sonority or that nice little feel to it. So, eventually people would also call him Konji Koma. And he would say, like, he accepted this name that came from the people that saw him fight and stuff like that. And accepted this fighter's name that they gave him to him. But that he wasn't a count in any way. He, because Konji means count, count as in royalty, as in the aristocracy, but he didn't get a, a title of count. There was just purely for the fighting business. He was Count Koma. That's how you see it. Koma probably came from the fact that you put, put people's lights out. <laughs> so that was interesting to know. Um, that was one of the things. So he changed the name over there. He became Konji Koma. Um, he became this amazing fighter. He became this, this person that was constantly fighting. Um, and then he fought this Japanese guy and the guy wanted to run, but the last moment he couldn't run, he couldn't get away. So he had to fight. And of course, Maeda beat him and became a little bit more famous in Spain. But then also he learned how to do Spanish and he also changed his method of teaching self-defense and teaching to a more European style because in these European travels he understood that the self-defense systems that he learned in Japan were not going to be so useful for the Europeans because who the hell in Europe walks around with a, with a katana or with other weapons and stuff like that it just didn't happen in Europe anymore the systems were different and the means of attacking somebody else was different there were canes there were other things to use so these were things that had to change and that he slowly changed in his self-defense systems now after all of this he went to cuba and in mexico and in cuba and that was just fighting and when people heard about this in japan they were like this is not okay that he keeps fighting so much and doing it for money it's not cool so in this time i had also met up with uh, the other horsemen remember those from the beginning of the story and he met up with the other uh, pillars of, of judo and he actually explained to them and had conversations with them and showed to them what he was actually doing but he was far more interested in fighting these other guys and expanding on his judo and expanding on his fighting skills he didn't care and he said like the only thing that's bad is that I'm not able to progress into the next dan or the next degree on my black belt that's going to be a thing that they're keeping me from 
but otherwise, I'm very content to continue. And he fought a lot in Cuba and he fought a lot in Mexico in prize fights. And there's posters of that and there's drawings of that of this small Japanese guy just beating the crap out of catch as catch can fighters. And there are letters and there is a book actually that wrote down all the fights that Maeda had. And it was somewhere within 76 fights. And if I'm not mistaken, he has 72 wins. Four of those wins he lost by uh, draw. and No, he lost three of those by draw. And one was an actual loss. Interesting. Um, little detail. But yeah, um, that's how it went at that time. And there is actually a piece of newspaper there that that shows a nice little challenge that he would put out. So he would put out challenges like, you can win if you beat me $500 or pesos at the time. I'm not 100% sure because they only showed the dollar sign. But it was $500 if you beat me. The rules are very simple. Not allowed to kick with the tip of your toes, only with the sole or the top of your feet. No scratching, no biting is allowed. If you you cannot grab the head of your adversary. If you want to grab your head adversary, you have to grab him by the clothes, or on, from uh, from the head down. You're not allowed to bite. You're not allowed to do any of these things. Um, you have to have short fingernails on your fingers and on your toes. Um, fighters did not lose if their backs landed on the floor or their both shoulders landed on the floor. The only way to lose is if the opponent taps against the mat or taps against the, the opponent three times. So there was this three times when you have to slap three times or tap three times before the fight is considered done. Also, there were no headbutts allowed and no nutshots, of course. That's how they, they set it up. And this is in a piece of newspaper from 1909. That's when the challenges came out. Now, this is where the move actually happens. And this is now, after fighting all this time, he actually finally tours from Cuba to South America. And in 1913, he arrives in Brazil. Uh, no, there's a moment actually before that. He goes to Brazil, 1913, and he teaches for a little while at uh, the military school in Salvador, Bahia. And this was a normal thing, all right? So this happened a lot. So the people over there, they would accept uh, these judo fighters to come into the uh, into the military and or the Marines and teach them how to fight. That was something that happened uh, quite often. But then... Of course, they would leave. So he did, wasn't actually in Brazil. He just came there, taught at the army, and then left again. So didn't establish himself in any way. But in 1914, he actually arrived in Brazil again, in the south of Brazil. So he started in Porto Alegre, then moved to Sao Paulo, then he Beno Preto, and then Rio de Janeiro, and then all the way to Belém do Pará. And in the meantime, he would teach in all of the military places over there. He'd been up at schools and do the, the whole thing and challenge people and fight them and stuff like that. Until he went all the way to... He eventually arrived in Pará, all the way in the north of Brazil. So it took him a while to get all, all the way up there. So he, he traveled quite a bit to get up there. And um, in 1916, that's when he made... Uh, he arrived in Belém do Pará. 
And when he arrived there, uh, he met somebody called Gaston Greci, which is a very interesting person for him. And Gaston Greci was the owner of a circus. Gaston Greci, if you know the name Greci, might ring, start to ring a bell, was the great grandfather of this whole thing. And he took an immense interest in what was happening with judo and contracted, actually, Maeda and two of the other horse, uh, two of the other the pillars of judo that were with him at that time and told them, like, you're going to teach and you're going to fight for me. So he contracted them to teach his sons, Carlos Gracie especially, but there were other Gracies there. I will go into that soon to teach his sons some judo. Now, once he started teaching this and officialized the teaching that he was doing, um, he, he, he wrote letters back and forth with uh, Japan about teaching judo. And they were saying, like, you can't teach judo outside. Like, judo you learn in, in Japan. You won't, can't teach it because you are also doing a lot of prize fighting and we're not okay with that. So change it. And that's when he changed it to, well, I'm good. Then I'm going to teach jujitsu. And that's what he did. He taught Carlos Gracie jujitsu. And for a couple of years, he stayed with Gaston Gracie and the circus. And he actually made it so that he became even more famous in Brazil after doing a couple of prize fights. And of course, he passed that on to Carlos Gracie about being in a system of prize fighting to better yourself, to learn yourself and to make a name for yourself. And it was already a little bit in this circus culture, as you would see in other countries. After four years, uh, Maeda left and the Gracies continued learning and, and teaching Judo and Jiu-Jitsu actually under somebody else. I will continue the story in another thing. I will focus on Maeda right now. Maeda actually left and uh, visited a couple of other countries, but he was very, very passionate about Brazil. So he came back for Brazil and he started to actually set up immigration policies and immigration situations so that other Japanese people would visit Brazil because he was so enamored with Brazil and the areas that he was in that he wanted other Japanese people to settle down in Brazil and actually started growing a community of Japanese people in Brazil. And till this day, you can actually see a little bit of the reverberations, reverberations of what he wanted to do at this time, because there's a huge number of Japanese people or Japanese descendant people in Brazil. I think it's the biggest population outside of Japan. So Mitsuyo Maeda had a very big impact on Brazil itself, not only on Jiu Jitsu, but on Brazil itself with all these things that were happening. He eventually set everything up, but before he would see all these immigrants come in, all these Japanese immigrants over there. He actually died before that. And for a short time before that, he actually started teaching again after a famous judoka came from Japan and started to set that up. This is a little bit the story of Mitsuyo Maeda, and I hope I've done it justice in the meantime. And I hope you enjoyed it. And we will continue soon with Carlos Gracie and Gaston Gracie and the other Gracie brothers 
that started to create Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in Brazil. Maeda has been of tremendous influence in Brazil in more ways than just one and all over the world with his method of prize fighting and stuff like that and just beating everybody being that small. And that was a good one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have time, check out the, the sponsors of today. It helps me and yeah, it, it definitely helps them too. Thank you very much for your attention. Have a wonderful evening. Stay sexy wherever you are.